Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 135, and blood is being spilled in Natal. As you heard, Pietro Tief and 100 Boers and Khoisan Achtereyes have been killed by Dingana on the 6th of February, 1838. Missionary Owen watched the killings through his telescope until he couldn't take it any more and collapsed in shock. The Zulu king was not done. He ordered his Amabuta warriors to seek and destroy the Voortrekkers who'd camped along the rivers below the Drakensberg, where they had arrived in large numbers expecting Retief's negotiations to have ended well. Retief had thought they had, particularly after he'd returned Dingana's cattle, Russell Basikonyela of the Batlokwa. About a thousand wagons had descended the passes, and the Zulus were determined the Voortrekkers were not going to remain on the land they'd invaded. Meanwhile, the vultures, the wild dogs, the hyenas, the jackals began to feed on the bodies strewn about Kwamatawani, where Retief's men had met their grisly end, while Owen and his family trembled with fear nearby. Were they going to be next? they wondered. Dingana had sent a message as Retief was being killed, saying they were safe, but who believed the Amazulu leader about anything? A document had been left inside Pit Retief's leather satchel thrown near his body, and that was the letter with Dingana's mark granting the Boers land. This document, as I mentioned, has caused quite a bit of debate over the last 200 years. It's going to pop out quite regularly in the coming story, but it's the manner of its design that should interest us most. That's because the Boers took it as proof of Dingana's granting of permission for Retief to move on to Natal land, but for the Zulu it is merely a flimsy forgery. It's very difficult to get either side to discuss this in any reasonable way. In popular consciousness, folks have adopted a kind of intellectual and academic scorched-earth policy when it comes to their views. One person's African nationalist is not another person's Afrikaner nationalist, if you excuse the equation. But recovering the story chronologically, so first things first. We're going to concentrate on events, and they are shocking. But if you have followed this series so far, you know that Southern African history is flooded with blood. We live in an extremely tough part of planet Earth that only appears benign at times of plenty. Nothing is easy here, and yet everything is possible. As Pliny the Elder said, and forgive my crumpled Latin, it's been a while, Semper aliquid novi Africam ad ferre, always something new in Africa. So after Retief's death, Tingana was keeping his eye on missionary Owen and sent half a dozen of his most trusted warriors to camp alongside the mission's station, ostensibly to protect them against possible assault, but most likely to make sure they didn't try to flee. Owen ordered his traumatized family and his servants to go into his hut, and there he read Psalm 91 as he wept for the death of so many Boers. His 14-year-old translator, William Wood, the boy who tried to warn Retief at the last minute, kept watch on Mgungudlovu through the telescope, as Owen's voice could be heard reciting the psalm, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. It was a noisome pestilence that had overcome Retief. But where was Retief's translator, Thomas Halstead? He'd remained alongside Retief, helping the Fortreka leader converse with Tingana. What had happened to him, wondered Owen. 
Then another messenger arrived from Dingana to repeat that the missionaries were in no danger, and Owen asked him about Halstead. Oh, said the man, Halstead has returned to Port Natal with a message for Alan Gardiner. Then a little while later, another messenger arrived and told Owen that Dingana respected the new English queen, Victoria, and there was no need to worry. The missionaries would be protected. However, the fact that these messengers, guaranteeing their safety, were arriving regularly was terrifying. Then Dingana changed his mind again and said now he felt they should go back to Port Natal. The missionaries barely assimilated these messengers when another messenger arrived who told them that Dingana had changed his mind. They should now stay at the mission station. Owen was convinced that Dingana was going to kill them all. So many contradictory orders could only imply a Zulu king who was making impulsive and arbitrary decisions. It was like a cat playing with a mouse. That was Dingana's way. Meanwhile, some of the warriors were going through the Boers' baggage and inspecting the muskets that had been piled outside the main gate. Puffs of dust appeared from the south, and from there, two horsemen and their small travelling party appeared at Umgungudlovu. Talk about bad timing. It was James Brownlee, who was a very young translator and a trainee missionary, and the American Henry Venables. They had picked a particularly bad time to ride up to Dingana's great place. James was the son of John Brinley, who had set up the mission station in the Chumi Valley in the Eastern Cape, right in the middle of Ngika country. The elder Brinley had set off from there in 1822 on an expedition across the Kai and became the first missionary to take the gospel to the Kailaka. If you remember John Brinley's tales amongst Amakosa in earlier episodes, Brownlee Sr. had also visited the Tembu in 1824, where they had settled between the Mbashi and the Mtata rivers. He would go on to become one of the greatest missionaries in South African history. So Brownlee Jr. James, his son, was not only fluent in Dutch, English, Zulu and Kosa, he was also used to travelling into the middle of African chieftains, and he often journeyed with his father. James Jr. was taken aback when he saw the Zulu warriors holding the Boers' guns. The two fresh arrivals did not know yet what had happened to Retief. Where are the Boers and Retief? James Brownlee asked one of the warriors, who replied, they have gone hunting. Venables and Brownlee knew this could not be true because the Boers' guns were lying in a pile right in front of them and asked to see Dingana. An hour later, the Zulu king called him into his great place when Lela, the Nduna, welcomed them first, then bluntly told them the Boers were dead. Were the missionaries not grateful to Dingana they had been killed? asked Nlela. They should thank the king for getting rid of the troublesome Retief and his party. Dingana knew that the Boers had opposed English rule, so obviously these men before him should be pleased. He had dispatched their joint enemies, had he not? Brownlee and Venables hid their horror, and in a casual way asked why Dingana had done this. And Lela said Dingana had discovered a plot by the Boers to kill him. That is not true. The Boers were not planning a direct attack at all. However, as many have pointed out, their long-term goal, once they had descended the Drakensberg, was to seize as much land as they could, come what may. In Dingana's eyes, they were also wizards and powerful to be feared. Zulu nationalist historians are very defensive about this and believe Dingana had every right to kill Retief and the other Boers, for they were going to seize the land anyway, despite their sham of negotiating with Dingana. But what probably put pay to Retief and his men more than anything else was that their military prowess had preceded them. These were serious competitors to Dingana's power. He could put up with the fractious English traders, 
But these Boers, well, they were a completely different kettle of fish. Dingana was indulging in divide and rule. He was differentiating between the white people. He did not think the Boers were like the English at all. He treated the Boers like he treated other African clans and threats by trying to wipe them out. It's a bizarre fact, but Retief was more African than he had ever known or probably would have accepted because an African chief had chosen to use an African solution to what he perceived was an African problem. The Zulu king did not regard the English traders in the same way. They were outsiders, representing a powerful force that was non-African. They had a queen who lived across the ocean. That was alien. They could have come from another planet. He had seen their ships. These people had occult powers. They had vast amounts of money. They were to be handled lightly, he believed. The Boers had no ships. No, they were very much part of Dingana's cosmology. The English were unique. The Boers were just another tribe. They had come overland. They dressed strangely, yes, hats, trousers, rode these hornless cows, were armed, but they did not pitch up mysteriously from the deep depths of the ocean. From a Zulu perspective, Dingana's orders for his Amabutu to kill the foot-trackers was a matter of business as usual. This was the normal way of things when a chief was disgraced. He was executed. Then his family and adherents would be bumped off or eaten up to use the Zulu phrase, so that there would be none left alive to avenge the king. The Fortreka livestock would be seized and the king would redistribute the beasts amongst the Mabuto, exactly as the Boers had been doing amongst their commando members after the raids on Mzilekatsi. And like the Boer raids on Mzilekatsi, very few women or children were going to be spared by the Zulu warriors. The Zulu army of around 5,000 crossed a famous river at a famous point, the Mzanyati or Buffalo River near Rourke's Drift. Somewhat ironic that 42 years later, the very same crossing would see English soldiers fleeing from Tretuaya's warriors after the Battle of Izzantlwana hunted across this very same drift. So, the 5,000 warriors marched along the Halpmakar Heights towards the Tugela River and close to the confluence with the Blaukrantz through the second week of February 1838. By now, most of the trekkers had scattered around the territory, in little family encampments of three or four wagons over a large area. Only a few had taken the English traders' warning seriously and established defensive wagon lagers. Most did not. They just outspanned where they were and began enjoying the fruits of the felt. Many of these had headed off on hunts, leaving their families alone with their Khoisan servants, and to them, the Amazulu warriors were going to do what the Ama and Debele had done in August 1836, fall upon the wagons and kill everyone. Amazulu spies had been spending their days in the midst of these Boer encampments, coming in to barter goods or watching from nearby, and two of the three divisions of the Zulu army were heading straight for these scattered camps. These spies were passing on the information to the Impi. The right horn and the centre army opened the attack before midnight on the 16th of February, aiming at the camps along the Blokrans and its two tributaries. Later the Boers would call these little streams the Grootmurtspreit and the Kleinmurtspreit the great and small murder streams. And yet, by sending his men to kill the Boers, Dingana was also ensuring his own destruction. Every assegai plunged into a Boer body was a spear plunged into his own stomach, as the prose poets were going to chant in a short while. Right up to this point, the Fortrekkers had regarded the Zulu and their king Dingana as dangerous, but not necessarily the enemy. Up to now, the Boers had not killed any major chief, it was the British who shot down Hinsa of the Amatkoza in the Nkabeha River. 
The Boers had chased the Mzilikatsi of the Amandebele away, but they had not killed him. So by deciding to exterminate the Futrekas, Dingana was significantly raising the military temperature and dictating the future relationship. The Futreka revenge was going to be inexorable and unrelenting. In a few years, the Izibongo Zulu prose poets would be singing a new line once Dingana had been terminated with extreme prejudice by his half-brother Mpande. Alas, O oh hairy one of Ngungunglovu, you killed the Boers. You thrust an evil spear into Zululand. You thrust in an evil spear. You thrust it into your own stomach, did you not? Let's return to Ngungunglovu quickly, because in Lela, the Nduna was still talking to Venables and Brownlee inside the great place, and he asked the two what they wanted. We have come to teach, said Venables, the American. To teach what? Mglela asked. The good book and the word of God, replied Venables. Can you not rather teach us to ride and shoot? snapped Mglela. The missionaries were non-committal about training warriors to ride and shoot, saying they were hungry after the long journey and wanted to visit Owen. Mglela let them go to the mission station, and they did so tentatively, certain they would find death within the six Zulu sentries sat outside. No one else was visible. Moments later, they were relieved to see Owen and his family and the teenager William Wood, as well as others inside the hut, all praying for their lives. Just a quick note about the 14-year-old William Wood. He had probably saved Owen's life shortly after the massacre of Petritif's men. Owen had confronted Dingana's last messenger and blurted out that the missionaries disapproved of the killings. William Wood, who'd spent his entire life in Port Natal and understood how things worked, decided to use his initiative when he translated Owen's words. Tell the king that we consider that he has acted perfectly rightly in killing the farmers, said the boy in Zulu, as no doubt they would have otherwise have killed us, as well as the king and his people. Owen had no idea that his sentiments had just been reversed, but this could have saved his bacon. Dingana was very pleased upon hearing these mistranslated sentiments and handed over an ox as a reward. It was after those comments on the day Retief had died that he called Owen and Wood to appear before him, escorted by sixty warriors. Both thought they were going to die. The king looked at Owen and Wood silently at first, staring at them with his expressive eyes, his all-seeing, piercing gaze that was feared throughout his kingdom. "'Are you afraid?' He asked Owen, who shook his head nervously. He was unable to utter a sound. He was so terrified. Dingana laughed. You behaved well, he said. Do you still wish to go to Durban? Owen shook his head again, and Dingana looked even more pleased. Good, said the Zulu king. Go back to your huts. They hurried out of the great place. Now Dingana ordered Venables and Brownlee to appear before him, and demanded they teach his Amabuto how to shoot. When they refused... He demanded they show him how to saddle and unsaddle the Boer horses, which were still saddled up a day after Retief's murder. They showed him how to unsaddle the horses. While they did so, Dingana claimed he was sorry about Thomas Halstead being killed with the Boers. It was an accident. Halstead had fought tooth and nail alongside the Furtrekkers when the Amabuto warriors attacked them. He had died fighting, and he had accounted for at least one of the dead warriors himself, according to oral tradition. The next day, Brownlee and Venables decided to return to Durban. It was much too dangerous to remain at Mgungudlovu, they thought. Time to leave Zululand. It was the season of the witch, the season of the wizard. 
While all of this was going on, Dingana's MPs had swept across the Mzinyati, heading towards the Blokrans River, where hundreds of footrekkers camped. The footrekker in command of this area, of around 1,000 kilometers square, was Gert Maritz, who'd taken over from Piet Ace, and he'd gone home to fetch his followers in Transoranya. The main footrekker camp below the Drakensberg was at Durenkop, and comprised about 78 wagons, and included the Retief family and those of the Greilings, Skepers, Van der Merves, the Fulunes and the Hattings. The Zulu right horn, or Upondo, of around 1,500 men, followed the north bank of the Blokrans, while the central Impi, of around 2,000 men, was charging towards these encampments from the east. The left horn, roughly 1,500 men in number, was heading around the hills to the south. Maritz's wagons were close to where the modern-day town of Escort is today, and Salir's group wasn't far away. Fifty families living along the Bushman's River. A larger group of 100 wagons under Commandant Jan Duplessis had rolled onto the flatland near Spionkop between the Little Tugela and the Drakensberg, just southeast of Duenkop. In these 100 wagons were the de Klaks, de Beers, Mullers and de Vinars. Near the Groot Murt Spreit were scattered wagons under Baron Liebenberg, Weinand Besaidenheit, A.J. Rousseau, Robert Schreilings, the Jubeers, Moor van der Mervis, the Prinzlers, Botmas, Steenkamps and Kloppers. Further afield, along the Moy River, were the Malans, the Swarts and the Breets. Some of these Boers began to sense danger before the Zulu army appeared. By the 15th of February, reports had begun circulating that Retief was dead, and some began to believe it, because their leader was now overdue back from his negotiations with Dingana. He should have returned from meeting the Zulu king by now. Maritz sent Greiling and a small patrol out on that day to see what was going on, and they crossed the upper together pretending to be on a hunting expedition. Soon after crossing the mighty river, they spotted an old man. What are you looking for? he asked, and appeared agitated. Greiling said they were hunting buffalo. I saw herds of buffalo over there, the old man pointed south. Greiling ignored him, and they all continued riding towards nearby Kopi. The old man began running alongside the horses, and he was growing more agitated. The Boers realized they had roused his suspicions, so they turned around and rode back to their camp. Little did they know that about 200 meters away, behind the Kopi, the main Zulu army was waiting in silence. They were waiting for darkness to assault the Voortrekker camps, and the Voortrekkers had almost all let their guard down. Some of the men were actually away hunting. Others had returned to the Drakensberg to help trekkers down the treacherous slopes. There were hundreds of women and children who were enjoying the summer. Women were picking vegetables they'd planted weeks earlier. The men who'd remained behind were repairing the wagons and smelting ammunition, preparing the bulltong. On the evening of the 16th of February, 1838, the Voortrekkers went to sleep and were awakened by a nightmare of horrific proportions. It was a moonless night, and shortly after midnight, two groups of Amabutu formed up close to the outlying wagons, which belonged to the Liebenbachs, close to the Blokrantz River. The Amazulu were strung out across a front 40 kilometers wide. The night was hot, humid. The frogs were noisy in the wetlands. The crickets pulsated. Then the trekkers' dogs began to bark and the newly married Petrus Liebenbach and his three younger brothers all ran out of their wagons carrying their sanas. The Amazulu warriors charged at them out of the dark. The Boers spotted a man, the Khoisan, or colored man, amongst the Zulu, and a terrible miscalculation was about to take place. This was George Bigger, the son of English trader Alexander Bigger. He had been sent by his father to warn the trekkers about what had happened to Petrus Tif, 
and George had ridden into the camp at exactly the moment that the Zulu attacked. He jumped off his horse and was running through the masses of Zulu warriors in the dark. None accosted him. By now, another man had also arrived to warn the Boers. Richard King, or Dick King, sent by American missionaries in Durban to warn the Boers. But King only arrived after the Liebenbachs had been overrun, and he ended up fighting for his life alongside the Boers. Spotting George Bigger amongst the Zulu, Baron Liebenbach's son-in-law, Van Fieren, opened fire on him, shouting, Traitor! The round ripped through George's arm, and he screamed, You have shot off my arm! What are you doing among the Zulu? Van Fieren fired back and shot Bigger dead. The very man sent to warn the Boers was amongst the first shot down by friendly fire. A symbolic moment. Terrible scenes began to play out in the darkness, and the Liebenberg men realized there were no match for this large army. They abandoned their wagons, leaving their wives and children to their fate. Behind them, Christina Susanna, who had married Petrus Liebenberg only a month earlier, was speared to death, along with Hester Liebenberg and Susanna Liebenberg, who was Daniel Liebenberg's wife. Their four children were also dead in seconds while the men ran to safety. The warriors shifted upriver, attacking the Besaidenhoots, who were trying to fight back behind their five wagons. Daniel Besaidenhoot woke, he heard his dog snarling, and he stumbled out. It was maybe 1 a.m. Perhaps it was a leopard, he thought. Then 270 meters away in the dark, he saw the Amabuto. His dogs were biting the Zulu, slowing them down, and Daniel shouted to his family, they were being attacked. Daniel's younger brother, 14-year-old Petrus Johannes, thought the sheep were running away and jumped out of the wagon to chase them. That saved his life. At precisely that moment, Zulu warriors jumped into the wagon. One managed to wound Petrus Johannes in the back, but he disappeared into the dark, and he sprinted to where the horses were tethered. Using his braces, he managed to control one of the steeds, then rode off, taking seven other horses with him. He was on his way to Durenkop, where he'd arrive at dawn the next day. Within 24 hours, survivors of what was now going to take place would make their way here too. The Besaidenot family was wiped out. First Daniel's father, then Rulof Puerta. Daniel saw his wife die, then his baby, then his mother, his mother-in-law, his brother, his four sisters, and his five-year-old niece. Daniel continued to fight against these immense odds, and the death of his family seemed to imbue him with a superhuman strength. He launched a suicide attack straight at the Zulu warriors, managing somehow to shoot and slash his way through them while assegais plunged into his body. His chest, his thigh, a third hit him above his left knee, a fourth struck his right ankle, slicing his tendons, but he continued running, driven by adrenaline. Daniel Besadnot eventually reached the cattle kraal and hid amongst the cows, listening to the warriors looting his wagon, smashing the crockery. Wagons were tipped over. Chickens were being killed. Just a quick aside. Zulu did not eat chickens or eggs at this point in history, nor were they interested in seizing them alive and taking them home. They were very much eaters of red meat. Daniel was still alive when things quietened down, dragged himself from the kraal and stumbled down the Blokrantz River to warn other trekkers of the approaching danger. Nearby, the Breitz and the Swartz, as well as the Malans trekker groups, heard the shooting and the screams, and then young David Malan rode out to see what was going on. He was back in a few minutes with one of the Khoisan servants who'd been wounded. He'd pulled the man onto his horse and galloped home. The Zulu were slaughtering the trekkers, he said. The families left their wagons and ran towards a small kopi to hide. Nearby in the Salis camp on the Bushman's River, the family mistook the early morning gunfire to be a salute for Peter Retief. He must have returned, they thought. 
But the shooting continued, and strange noises filled the felt. Sounds of dogs barking, distant screams. The men saddled up the horses and sent the women to hide in a bush-covered ravine. Another regiment had just attacked the De Beer camp. All the children were killed immediately. Two of the De Beer men and four of the women also died. But young Elizabeth De Beer had grabbed her baby and hid under a wagon. Warriors saw her and stabbed her repeatedly through the wheel spokes, but she didn't flinch, feigning death. They left her and moved on. Then she crawled out and ran to the nearby Blokrans River. That was when she discovered her child had died. So she left the body in his blankets and quickly climbed a thorn tree to get out of sight. A warrior had seen her go and hurried down the river, but she had disappeared. Then drops of blood began splattering down onto the warrior. He looked up. He tried to stab her, and she climbed higher, the thorns adding to her wounds. He missed, and then began climbing the tree. Suddenly, shots rang out nearby. The warrior gave up and ran off, leaving Elizabeth sobbing, but alive. It was nearly 2 a.m., and most of the trekkers had moved down the Blokrantz, and the great and small Moortspreits were dead. A Khoisan servant who survived ran into Gert Fulun's camp, shouting about the attack, but he just couldn't believe it. The man was gibbering. Everyone dead? How could it be? The carnage had been so severe that some of the trekkers who witnessed these massacres never spoke again. They lost the capacity for speech. They became permanently mute. Fulun stood there rooted to the spot, his mind refusing to process the servant's words until a messenger arrived from his brother-in-law's camp from Johannes Breitenbach, and then Gert Fulun snapped into gear, lagered his wagons, the men stuffing thorn bushes between the wheels and awaiting the inevitable. The inevitable arrived at dawn when hundreds of Zulu warriors approached his camp. However, the Amabuto discipline had begun to break down by now. The warriors preferred looting the wagons and picking up valuable tools, the knives, the axes. They were searching through the smoking remains, picking through the shattered wagons, breaking up into smaller groups. As so often happens in war, after a time of extreme carnage, discipline collapsed. The warriors were laden with portable treasures, seized from the trekkers, and many appeared more concerned with driving away the sheep and the cattle than in hunting down the surviving foot-trekkers. The central and right horns of the Zulu army had achieved a great deal. Now the Zulu left horn marched up to Khat Maritz's camp at the confluence of the Bushmen's and the Little Bushmen's River. Maritz, however, was ready. He was one of the few who believed the English traders and their warnings, and he'd even tried to stop Retief going back to Umgunglovu. Thus, Moritz had set up his camp fully prepared for a Zulu attack. That was bad news for the Zulu impi, because this was a heavily defended position known as a Sailaya, and to his west was another extremely gifted military commander, Johann Hendrik de Lange, who was a former farmer from Gramstown and known by his friends as Hans Donz, or orphan fluff. He had a rather scraggly beard, you see. But there was nothing fluffy about his fighting tactical prowess. He had been part of the original Trek, led by Piet Ace into Natal. He was a veteran of the Cape Frontier Wars, and Hans Donz was an expert scout and commander. He also knew how a properly constructed lager could defend itself against thousands of warriors, and both he and Moritz had spent much time planning their defences. What happened next is for episode 136. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you have the inclination, it helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through X at deslatham. Until next, salagatli. Thank you.